going to read from 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, I know that David has uh, picked on bits of this uh, as he's gone through various series with us, but this, I think, is probably different. I'm not going to read from the start, not because I don't like the first bit, but because I think from verse 4 is really where we want to concentrate. So page 1020, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to the end. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kind of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptised into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if there were, any one, and if there were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honourable, on these we bestow greater honour. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it, that there may should be no schism in the body, but that all the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So we sing again from the book. So we've gone from a new one to a a pretty old one and I was wondering whether we actually knew it because um, I liked the words I wasn't sure about the tune but I'm pretty sure we're quite happy with it so it's number 380 based on Psalm 133 oh how beautiful the sight of brethren who agree in fellowship to unite it's almost as if the Gettys have taken something old and then put it into a new form but the words equally as good so 380 
some of these older authors live so 1771 to 1854 83 years going way back then I guess it was unique well we as you know when I'm doing it don't have usually series and tonight's no exception when I, it just struck me I, I like to feel as if I can actually feel what it is that we're going to talk about and this had been on my heart for a while and the heading, as I think Cliff gave out, was making the most of the parts, the church family. And you might look at it at the end and say, I didn't understand a word of what the title meant to the rest. But I think it relates to 1 Corinthians 12. So I have about six bits, I think, for those of you that like. So it starts with what is the church and it ends with a conclusion. So if I say it's the conclusion, we've come to the end. But start off with what is the church? Well, firstly, the local church is just a small part of a wide world, worldwide church of Christ. We've only got to look at the verse that was up, is up here, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore into all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This isn't about Belvedere, this isn't about Britain. There is a worldwide church of Christ and we are a local part of that. Secondly, those who have believed in Christ and therefore been forgiven of their sins should belong to a local church. You know, talking to those who obviously believe that, it's not an optional extra. Look at Acts 2, 41 and 42. Then those who gladly believed his word were baptised and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. So it's a local church, part of a national, worldwide church, and it's for believers, and everyone who's a believer should be part of the local church. Thirdly, we recognise that a church is made up of born-again sinners. It's never going to be perfect. When we were young Christians, and I think probably within the first year, there was a church meeting that wasn't too good, and we were told by someone to, if we went to find a perfect church, not to join it, because we'd only be saddened by it and we'd mess it up. 
implication, no such thing as a perfect church. We need to recognise we are all sinners saved by grace. So what is church? It's not a spiritual hospital for weak Christians, nor is it a spiritual gym for those who are young, healthy and active. It's for all types, all ages, all backgrounds, all nationalities and all levels of the social scale. It shows that it's God who's created it because I wouldn't have think you'd find many clubs in the world that would look anything like the Christian church. It's uh, so broad. So importantly, it is the church of Christ. It's not a particular member's church. It's not a particular pastor's church. It's God's way of preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth. So I think that is what is church. And you may say, why on earth do you need to say that? But it's a sort of foundational block, I think. And so many of the things we come across suggest things other than that. So what is church for? Well, about seven or eight points, I think. The local church is the place where we receive spiritual teaching, guidance, pastoral care. I think we saw that in the quote from Acts chapter 2. The New Testament's full of letters from Paul and others to the churches, giving them teaching and guidance. The pastor of the church gradually understands where each individual member is in their Christian life as he understands the needs so he can aid and pray for individual members. I think that's the way it should work. Alistair Begg, you know that we like a lot. He recently had a series that they call Basics where they do uh, teaching over about a week in the year and he then did a question-answer session at the end and someone was asking about his time at the current church. I think he's been there 38 years in Ohio. He said after seven years, he felt he'd hit a brick wall. He wasn't coping with the admin and the management of the church, and he felt that maybe it was time for him to give up. The church acknowledged his lack of gifting and sent him away to someone who talked to him. And when he came back, he agreed, yes, I haven't got those gifts. But what did they do? They said, your preaching is wonderful. We love you as a pastor. We will appoint someone else in the eldership team who will look after those matters of admin that you're not wanting and capable of doing. So they build a team to get the best out of everyone. Now he says he realises that a pastor cannot truly be effective until he's been in the church for seven years. Think through the implications. He says that since many pastors move around every three or four years, then maybe a lot don't ever become effective. The local church is a place where we learn to understand each other, hopefully, and learn from each other, and that's vital. The teaching elder is there to equip all the other saints for ministry, according to their gifts. So we learn this in Ephesians 4.11. says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. This isn't about a pastor who runs a church, it's a pastor who equips everyone else to also go and do the works of ministry. So the lo local church is also where we learn to be more like Christ. And you might say, hmm, I know that's the theory. I'm not sure it's working for me. Well, join the club. I think we all feel that way. But see the next verses in Ephesians. It's for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Not perfect yet to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I think David Hercock has been teaching us something of this over past weeks. 
while showing us the tenderness that's required as we face the trials of a modern world, which is, we know, pretty hostile. So, what else? The local church is a place where gifts and abilities become clear, uh, where we can serve God using those abilities. We'll come on to those bits a little bit later. Local church is a place where Christians serve each other and the world. I was so impressed with uh, Bexley Heath when they put out their food bank during the lockdown and you know we've had the books out different sort of food but serving people with food and the local church is a place where discipline and sanctification take place and we don't like those words to some degree but discipline should be obviously in a gentle caring way to restore people to their right role before God and lastly the local church pre- pre- prepares safe sinners for heaven It also teaches the word to show the lost that they need Christ. And there are arguments, I'm sure, amongst theologians as to whether the church is for the church or whether it's for evangelism, but I'm sure it's probably for both. So what pictures do we have of the church? I think in scriptures there's basically two pictures of what the church is. These are the family of God and the body of Christ. There are probably other pictures as well, but they're the two main ones. So what do we find from the family of God? When we look at family life in a modern generation, we often see a mess, don't we, created by largely a result of going against God's plan for the family. To many people, a father figure is to be feared, and therefore they get completely wrong impression of God as their father. In John 1, um, yeah, John 1 verse 12 we read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. I find that mind-blowing, really. There used to be a song that we had during the lockdown Sunday school. Doesn't that blow your mind? And you think that's almost irrelevant. But in some ways it's not, because these things are so big and so bold. Uh, Although we don't deserve it, we become part of a worldwide family, And each one of us can know God as a father who loves them so much that he gave his son for every single one of them. It's not going to be something you're going to hear anywhere else, is it? Further in Romans 8, 16, 17, we see that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, you become a brother or a sister of Christ and possess all that he possesses. Aren't you amazed by that? In Old Testament times, the oldest son got all the benefits. The women were largely ignored, a bit like we were hearing Sunday morning. And have you ever heard of middle child syndrome? I think we've heard of it in some of our families. Well, that's not what will happen in the Church of Christ. Whatever our position or our status in life, we're all heirs of glory, all equally accepted and equally loved by a heavenly father. So that's the family of God. What about the second picture of the church? The body of Christ. This is the other major picture which is brought out both in Ephesians and in Colossians. And it applies equally to the worldwide church and the local church. Again, marvel at the concept. There's a motley bunch of people, sorry to call us that, but I think it's true. Sinners, true, albeit saved sinners, but we could be spoken of as a body of Christ, the head of the church. And I think that is just incredible, isn't it? We're not a religious group, 
We're not a holy huddle. We're precious to Christ and bought by his own blood. We're placed on the earth and in churches to represent him. And therefore, his reputation amongst men and women is impacted by how we act in the world. Put simply, if the members of the body bring shame and disgrace on themselves, they also disgrace the head of the church. And I don't think we often realise that, but you've only got to see the potential implication. Something goes wrong in the church, it ends up in the local paper, everyone thinks, what's that then? Oh, I thought they were Christians. I'm old enough to remember the numbskulls. Anyone else remember the numbskulls? No, far too young. Or didn't read the right comics. I think it was probably in Beano or Dandy. There's a group of imaginary beings who sit in your brain and control all the actions of your other parts of your body. And, of course, being those sort of characters in the brain, they were desperate to try and do naughty things to the rest of the body and then blame the hands or the legs or the arms. Well, Christ's the head of the body of the church, and he's not remote from his church, and he's not simply there telling them what to do. Instead, he's integrally linked to his church, and often in the passages from Paul we read, in Christ, in him, the church and Christ as the head are together as one. You may say, how can that be? He died over 2,000 years ago, but if you remember our study of grace a few months back, he left us with the Holy Spirit and he left us with his completed word. And as a result of that, we can know Christ leading for us in this life. As head of the church, Christ loves the church. We heard from Andrew on Sunday, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And the vital evidence for the statement is that he was prepared to die for the church. As head of the church, Christ is with its members wherever they go. And whatever they do, this implies we don't need a list of do's and don'ts. We just need to ask ourselves, would Christ be pleased with what we do, with what we say, with what we think? As an encouragement, since Christ is head of the church, he will certainly never abandon it. As a pastor, Paul Brown, and he writes to us, although we may not always be a, he may not always be able to rely on us, we can certainly always rely on him. That's sad, isn't it, in some ways, but it's wonderful that we can rely on Christ. What about gifts? And, of course, this passage brings up all sorts of problems, and I'm not going to address any of them. Uh, but when we think of a body, we know it has many functioning parts. We only really realise how wonderful the creation of the body is when one of its parts falls apart. And I'm very grateful that the body is not made up totally of knees. But I also was made aware in this last incident with mine how other parts of the body respond when one part is failing. So all my muscles responded to try and protect the knee joint. I wasn't happy at the time, but I'm sure it probably did a lot of good. Often we stress the need for unity. We have prayer meetings, we talk about appointing another under-shepherd and we pray for continued unity and that's right. However, we rarely consider the importance of diversity in the church. This really does show that in all things in the church we need godly balance. So easy in the preaching or in our own lives to pick on one thing and make something ultra important of it and not be balanced in our teaching. 
So indeed, although people focus on ongoing spiritual gifts, and I'm sure there will be churches where that's more so than here, the main purpose of 1 Corinthians that we read, one of the longest passages on the functioning of the church, is to focus on diversity. <laughs> it's a great word in modern days, isn't it? But we have a different meaning here. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 to 6, we read, There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Let's be clear, we do not decide our gifts or our activities. We see that in verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So often people try and make out what their gifts are you should have to define it on what the Spirit is telling you. So often in churches there is strife because one person wants a job that someone else is doing or one person feels that they are far better equipped than someone else in the church. In my experience this often comes down to playing the organ although that may be very unfair, it could be all sorts of things and I promise you that I'll never be seeking this role in this church or any other church but it, it's sad that this happens. It's often the case that someone feels, I could have done that better than them. We really need to be far more supportive of the people who are doing the roles that they are doing. This diversity continues throughout the chapter. In verses 8 to 10, there are nine different gifts mentioned. In verse 28, there are eight different sorts of people who's given a ministry and gifts. And it's also true from verse 28 to 30 that all do not have the same gifts to clarify how all of this gifting fits together Paul introduces the helpful picture of the body we've read it but again Paul Brown minister helpfully points out that Christians are all different they act in different ways none should try to be what they are not nor should any be despised because they do not have the gifts that others have I may be totally wrong you can tell me afterwards but it seems to me that churches have a couple of basic problems. Some feel that they have to do something because otherwise a vital ministry will not get done. Others feel that they have no gifting at all and therefore it would be better to let all the others get on with everything. That may or may not be true and it may be different in different churches. The truth is that we all have work to do and we all work together using our divinely given gifts and then much more can be achieved. Some of the gifts will be spiritual, teaching, praying, evangelising. Some will be practical, finance, admin, building maintenance, welcoming people, making teas and coffees. But all are equally important for a fully functioning church. We very quickly notice when someone's not here to make the tea or someone's not there to welcome someone on the door. All of these things fit together. More and more I hear of churches being ripped apart by those wanting power in the church but the church should be a place of humility and empathy. Paul identifies this in verse 22 of our passage. No, much rather, those parts of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Put practically, if you tread on someone's foot, bang someone's knee in my case, it will probably hurt, but it may not be disastrous. However, if you poke someone in the eye with sharp pencil, it will probably cause lifelong damage. Sorry to those with eye problems, but I've been through it also. You understand the point. 
those which are weak things can easily be far easier damaged than the things that are strong. Paul then develops this further in verse 24. But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. So how does this diversity work towards unity? Firstly, we do not criticise our body because it's made up of hands, feet, knees, eyes, ears, noses. And strangely enough, in his passage where he mentions this, he doesn't ever mention the mouth. And he talks of the tongue in other places, but in this case he doesn't mention mouths. We recognise the incredible skill of the God who designed the body and made it so versatile. In the same way, we should not be critical of a part of the church body who have different gifts and talents, but we should praise the maker who brought such diversity to the local church. Secondly, we do not expect our ears to see. That would be strange, shouldn't it? So we should not criticise a part of the church body for not being able to do something that they're not gifted for. And thirdly, I go back to the example of my knee. In verse 26, Paul states, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. So that's gifting, and there could be a lot more that's said about that. But what about serving in the church? How does this work practically? I hope some of you managed to read the book that I put out with, by Tony Merida on Love Your Church. Chapter 5 of that book focuses on serving, using the gifts of the Spirit for the good of the body. And because he says it far better than I can, I'll just repeat his first paragraph there. Followers of Christ are not spectators in the church, but servants in the church. As a Christian, you shouldn't think of the church as a place where I go to listen to sermons, but as the place where I serve. To be sure, listening to sermons is very important, but church members are contributors to the ministry of the church rather than consumers of that ministry. And contributing involves giving time, talent, treasure for the health and growth of the local church. Merida gives three reasons why we should want to serve. Firstly, God's mercy. This is brought out in Romans 12, 1-2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In simple language, God has been merciful to each one of us and provided us with a saviour. What are we willing to give back to him? And then secondly, the Spirit's gifts. Well, we've just looked at some of them. Keller, uh, Tim Keller, gives a useful practical insight here when he says, we need to acknowledge that we are what we are good at and what we can do, because doing this makes us able to serve others. We are to think straight about ourselves, neither think too lowly of yourself nor too highly. And as in the parable from Christ, we need to be faithful stewards of the gifts given to us. Theologians love to debate the gifts and whether or not they exist, whether they don't, which are the most important. But let's remember, that, as David has told us over previous weeks, that the overriding and the most principal gift is love. Sometimes people ask, how do I know what my gifts are? Keller again provides an insight. He suggests that we should examine ourselves. What do I enjoy? What am I good at? what is fulfilling, but also learn from experience of doing jobs. 
and from the wise words of others who look at us and determine for themselves what they think our gifting is. And thirdly, and possibly most importantly, the son's return. Surely the greatest motivation is that the end is indeed nigh. We see the placards, the world is nigh. Well, you see the things going on in the world at the moment, maybe that's true. So there should be an urgency in our ministry. Peter puts it clearly in 1 Peter 4 verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Just conclusions then. Hopefully that made some sense, but if you didn't make sense, you can take just the conclusions. The local church is a bunch of people bought by the blood of a precious saviour. The local church should have a leadership that builds people up to do the work of ministry. There is no I in church. It's for the humble, not the proud. Who could possibly not want to be part of a church where Christ is their brother? If we are a body and Christ is the head, we should want to know what he expects of us and we'll receive that through the teaching. If we are a body, we should want to work for each other. We should recognise that we all have gifts and it's not possible to say you have no gifts. They may be very diverse, but they will be there. We should build each other up as to our gifts and help those who are weaker. And finally, if God has been merciful to us and given us gifts, we should use them as we do not know when Christ will return, but it's certainly closer than it was yesterday.